0: everyone. This is Nurse Mo, the straight A nurse from straightanursingstudent.com and welcome to the very first episode of the Straight A Nursing Student podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that was of huge interest to me when I first started as a brand new student. I had no frame of reference for what a normal parameter was for things like blood pressures, heart rates, respiratory rates. I really had no concept of what would constitute an emergency or something that needed my immediate attention or something that might not. So today's podcast is titled Emergency or Not. So let's first talk about blood pressure. And the thing that you're going to notice as you go throughout your nursing program and your clinicals is that you could ask just about any question regarding a patient scenario. And the answer is always, it depends. It really does depend on that particular patient, that particular scenario. And we'll go through a few examples so you can see what I mean. So let's say we're talking about blood pressure. Normal-ish is 100 to 120 systolic, 70 to 80-ish diastolic, Hypertension begins around 140. That's when people want to start changing their lifestyle, changing their diet, exercising more, maybe taking blood pressure, lowering medications. But let's say you're in the hospital and you're at your clinical day and your patient whose baseline blood pressure is usually around 160. You go in to check on him and his pressure is now 110 and he's looking pretty lethargic. So are you concerned? Okay, this is where it depends comes into play. A blood pressure of 110 is considered a normal blood pressure, but when his baseline is 160 and it has dropped now by 40 points and the patient is symptomatic, you are concerned. So first thing you're going to do is consider quickly in your head the causes for this. Uh, Maybe he's bleeding, did he have a recent surgery? Has he taken too many pain pills? Does he have an infection? Is he going into sepsis? Is he going into shock? Did he have massive fluid shifts? So you're thinking about all of these things as you're getting the patient back into bed okay so if he was up sitting in the chair or ambulating or doing anything like that you want to think safety first get him back into bed you might want to put the head flat so that um, that can help alleviate any neurological symptoms help perfuse his brain you may want to toss a little oxygen on especially if you think he could be bleeding you might have a high index of suspicion for that if the patient did have a recent surgery or has low platelets, or has some kind of coagulopathy. You will want to let the doctor know. You'll prepare to give a fluid bolus, most likely. You'll want to probably check a CBC. And if the patient is bleeding, start thinking about what you would need to do to prep him for emergent surgery or give blood products. Does he have the right IV access? Has he been NPO? All of those kinds of things. Okay, so that's an example of a patient whose blood pressure is, when you first glance at it, normal, but for him, not normal. It's too low. Something has happened to cause that change. Okay, here's another patient with a blood pressure issue. You've got a patient who comes in, you're working that day down in the emergency room, and they're complaining of a headache. Their blood pressure is 190 over 110. Emergency or not? I hope you said yes. This would be something that you would need to treat immediately. Uh, Anything over systolic 180 or diastolic 110 is considered a hypertensive crisis and the fact that the patient is also complaining of a headache is an ominous sign that there could be something neurological going on. Let's say this patient also had a platelet count of 20. If that were the case you would be extremely concerned. Um, A platelet count of 20 or below you can have spontaneous bleeding with no catalyst. a platelet count of 20 with a blood pressure that high, you're looking at a very possible brain bleed happening here. So what meds are you gonna give for a hypertensive crisis? Uh, Hydralazine is a common one, labetalol, You would watch the heart rate, of course, because that is a beta blocker. Um, A lot of patients get put on a nicardipine drip. Let's say you give the hydralazine, you give the labetalol, and it doesn't bring the blood pressure down. They're gonna get put on a nicardipine drip, which is a calcium channel blocker. Another one that I've seen a lot is a nitro drip, another vasodilator. So those are some of the common meds that you'll see when you're treating a hypertensive crisis. Now let's talk about the other end of the spectrum. What about a low blood pressure? So let's say you've got a patient who comes into the emergency room and her blood pressure is in the 70s. Emergency or not? Okay I really hope you said yes because this is an extremely low blood pressure and most likely not sustainable with life for a very long period of time. Um, One of the things that you're going to start learning about and looking at even more commonly than the systolic pressure is something called MAP, mean arterial pressure and you'll see that when you're looking at your monitor You'll have the systolic over the diastolic and the number in parentheses. That number in the parentheses is your MAP, your mean arterial pressure. And you want to have it at least 65 usually. Sometimes you'll get parameters to keep it above 60, but generally 65 is what is needed to perfuse all the major organs, most importantly the brain. So you're going to, um, there's lots of different ways to calculate MAP. One of the easiest for me is a one, two, three approach. So, if I can just remember one, two, three, I can kind of figure out how to calculate MAP if my monitor doesn't do it automatically or if I'm taking a manual blood pressure. So, it's one times the systolic plus two times the diastolic. Take that total and divide it by three. So, one, two, three. Um, I'll put this on the website so you can see it written out, and if it didn't make sense listening to it, it'll make sense when you actually see it. So what are you going to do for a patient who has a blood pressure in the 70s? Again, you're going to be making sure they've got good IV access. They're probably going to get a central line for pressure that low. I hope to God they're going to get a central line. Um, A central line is an IV line that goes directly into a large vessel near the right atrium. So they're going to get fluids, sometimes a ton of fluids, depending on why their blood pressure is so low. A lot of people come in and they're septic or they're severely dehydrated and they can get liters and liters and liters of fluid. I've seen people get 8, 10 liters of fluid. Um, Sometimes they'll get blood, sometimes they'll get albumin. It all just kind of depends on why their blood pressure is low in the first place. If all else fails, they've got adequate fluid resuscitation, they've got adequate CBC, and their pressure is still low, they're going to need additional help. They're going to need vasopressors. The most common one that we start people on is LevoFed, also called norepinephrine. You start the Levo, try to get the pressure up. If you get up to around 10 on the Levo, the dose, then you're probably going to have to add something else. I've seen Levo go as high as 30. Levo high like that is not a good sign, just FYI. Um, so when Levo gets around 10, you start thinking, I'm going to add something else like neosinephrine. And that'll typically be the second one that will start. Um, another one is just straight up epinephrine that you'll see. And then if the pressure is still low, they may have a pump problem, which we'll talk more about in the shock uh, podcast or maybe I'll do a shock um, something or other on the, uh, on the website, but you may need to add an inotrope such as dopamine or dobutamine. So those are some of the kind of drugs, some of the kinds of things that you'll be doing for your patient with either a too high blood pressure or too low blood pressure. And I would say the too low blood pressure is probably the one that I see most often, mainly just because there's a lot of sepsis. Out there and um, that's one of the first things that you'll see with sepsis is uh, a drop in blood pressure though there are other signs they are more subtle so the drop in blood pressure sometimes unfortunately is the one that gets people's attention okay so let's move on to heart rate and uh, the normals there this one's pretty simple 60 to 100 is considered the normal heart rate right so what constitutes an emergency with the heart rate again it depends what's the patient's baseline? Are they symptomatic? Do they have other comorbidities or issues that they're dealing with right now that indicate they could not sustain this heart rate for very long? For example, let's say we've got a little old lady whose normal blood pressure, like a lot of little old ladies, is 90 over 55 or something. Um, Her heart rate is usually around 82, okay? So if I had a little old lady with those vital signs and she was talking to me and not complaining of any dizziness, I would think, okay, she's fine. Um, but let's say her heart rate drops and now it's 55. And I'm looking at her and I think, is this normal for her? Is she going to be able to sustain this? She might, she might not. Um, it just really depends. You know, does she have any kind of heart disease. Does she have a good ejection fraction? Is her blood pressure able to compensate? So different things like that. You're going to look and see if she's symptomatic. That would be the main thing. Um, And then again, trying to find the cause. Why is her heart rate dropping? Did she take too many beta blockers? Did she take too much of her digoxin? Things like that. So um, let's say you've got a patient with some cardiomyopathy. They don't have a very good pump. And suddenly they become tachycardic in the 140s. What's going to happen to their filling time? Okay their pump already doesn't work. Their filling times are going to be drastically reduced if their heart rate suddenly shoots up from say 75 to 140. Do you think that their tired old out heart is going to be able to sustain this? Very likely probably not. Okay let's see you have a patient with a heart rate of 160. He has no shortness of breath. He has no pain. Is this an emergency? It's probably not an emergent emergency, but it is definitely something that you're going to have to tend to. Um, it does need to be addressed in a rather quick way. Um, I would have him vagal first of all. Get a syringe, take the plunger out, have them blow on it. Um, this causes a vagal reaction. I personally have never been able to get a vagal to work, but uh, in textbook. It works, so give it a try. That would be the first thing you would do. If you don't have a handy syringe, you can have them put their thumb in their mouth, uh, wrap their lips around their thumb, and blow—not um, without any air coming out—so that they're just pushing that pressure, or have them bear down as though they're having a bowel movement. Um, so you could try those things. Maybe they're having an anxiety issue. A lot of people have anxiety issues in the hospital. You'd be surprised. Maybe they're having pain. You know, you'd probably treat the underlying cause if you can find one. If not, then they may need, um, maybe they're dehydrated. So figure out why they're tachycardic. And if you explore all those things, none of those things work. You're probably going to give something like labetalol to get the heart rate down. That's a common one that we give. Uh, Sometimes maybe cardizem. Um, Another example, let's say the heart rate is still 160. But this time, patient can't catch his breath. His chest is feeling tight. Is this an emergency? This is an emergency for sure. This is something you wanna get on right away, right away, right away. This will be the case where you're going to get the doc on the phone ASAP or in the room. This is going to be an adenosine situation or even a synchronized cardioversion situation. Adenosine is one of the scariest drugs I've ever given. It resets the sinus node. It causes an asystole for Six or seven seconds, and it seems like an eternity. Patient will say it feels like they got kicked in the chest. It's scary as heck, and then you get a nice sinus rhythm back, and whoo, everybody's happy. So definitely, if they've got a high heart rate and they are symptomatic, this is treat right now, and don't bother with the vagal. Just go for it. Okay, let's go the other direction. Let's say you've got a heart rate of 45. Patient's hanging out. Watching Judge Judy, he's a young guy, super lean, doesn't have a single ounce of fat on his bones. Are you worried? You're probably going to ask him first, are you an athlete? Do you run really long distances? Because he most likely is some kind of an athlete. If he looks that fit and healthy, he's got a low heart rate and he's asymptomatic. This is probably his actual baseline heart rate. Let's say you've got a patient in the next room over who's got a heart rate of 45 who says, I don't feel right. Okay. This is considered a patient who is symptomatic, regardless of what their baseline is. Well, I take that back. If his baseline is 45 and he suddenly says, I don't feel well, there's probably many, many reasons why he doesn't feel well. Let's say their baseline heart rate's, you know, 90 and now he's got a heart rate of 45. That's a, you know, a cut in half. So if he says, I don't feel well, you're going to do something about it. The drug of choice here is atropine. It's going to amp up that heart rate. And um, other than that, if that doesn't work, this patient, and they're still symptomatic, they're going to get electricity, which means they're going to get paced. And you're going to do the uh, external pacing pads until the patient can get a pacemaker placed. Of course, if the heart rate's 45 because he took too much DIG or too many beta blockers, you're going to try to fix that first. So again, find out why, why is the heart rate so low? Okay. Let's say you've got a patient who's in the ICU. He's on a whole bunch of drugs to keep his blood pressure up. Remember we talked about the levofed, the neosinephrine, and all of those a minute ago. Let's say he's on those and he's maxed out on all of them. His heart rate's been 110 for three days. He suddenly drops down to 65. That's a normal heart rate, right? Okay. Not for this guy. This is bad. So if someone's heart rate who's on massive hemodynamic support, drops their heart rate from 110 down to 65, you're gonna act fast. Something's happened. Maybe he's had an MI, maybe he threw a massive pulmonary embolism, something's going on. You're gonna get in there ASAP, take the crash cart with you and get some help. Okay, so that's blood pressure, that's heart rate, those are just a few things that you'll see kind of commonly in maybe an ED or an ICU, probably on the floor too maybe. Uh, definitely you'd see things like that on telemetry or a step-down unit of some kind. Okay, so let's talk neuro. Any, any, any change in neuro status for the most part is an emergency, emergency. You are definitely going to be concerned and in some cases you're gonna be absolutely terrified. The brain is probably the scariest organ we have. So um, let's see an example. You get report, you're coming in on day shift, Your patient's asleep the night nurse says this guy was up all night uh let's just not wake him up i don't want to wake him up he just got to sleep so you think you're being kind you do your assessment for the most part you skip the neuro part but you listen to his lungs you listen to his belly you take his pulse you look at his skin you do his cap refill you do all of those things that you do on a normal head to toe, skipping the neuro part and he's still sleeping. So you think, wow, man, he is tuckered out. I'm going to let him nap for a little bit and then we'll get up and we'll get down to business. So a couple hours go by. He's still completely zonked out. You decide maybe I should go in there and check on him. So you try to wake him up. Guess what? He doesn't wake up. He is obtunded and completely unarousable. You press on his nail beds, you do a sternal rub, you yell his name. Are you concerned? Is this an emergency or not? Yes, you're definitely concerned, and it very well could be an emergency. So this pain is obtunded. That is bad. So the first thing you're going to do, you're going to do a couple of things right away. You're going to check a blood sugar, get one of your buddies to come in and check a blood sugar. You're going to get respiratory therapy to do an ABG. You're going to check, uh, did he get too many narcotics at night? Did something happen there? You're definitely going to call the MD, and you may very well likely have bought yourself a ticket to CT scan so the moral of this story is even if people just got to sleep even if it's seven o'clock in the morning and you know they're exhausted and you know they're going to be really annoyed with you for waking them up wake them up they can always go back to sleep but let's make sure everybody's brain is intact first thing when you get on shift okay so let's say you've got a 73 year old male he has a history of end-stage renal COPD coronary artery disease, and diabetes. He's a crotchety old guy who, rumor has it, gave the nurses on day shift a heck of a time, refusing to have his blood sugar checked, arguing about every little thing, you know, super demanding, wants ice chips and turkey sandwiches all day, um, this and that. So when you come on shift, he's, he's agitated, he's restless, he's pulling his leads off, pulling his blood pressure cuff off. He's already got one IV out. He's working on the other one. You call for a sitter. And you prepare yourself for a long night. Half an hour later, old guy's quiet as a lamb. You go in to do his uh, blood sugar. He sleeps right through it. Did he wear himself out from arguing and fidgeting all day? Probably not. Probably this guy with COPD is hypercapnic, meaning his CO2 is high and he needs intervention. In this case, usually it's BiPAP is what we do. The earlier agitation and restlessness was probably hypoxia. So, if you think about your patient who's restless and then somnolent, think hypoxia, then hypercapnia. If any patient is restless and agitated and not being reasonable, I would throw a little oxygen on them unless it's contraindicated. A lot of times, patients are hypoxic, and that's the for one of the first signs is they get really restless, really agitated and they can't really voice why they're so upset it just it just seems like they're having a really bad anxiety issue Um, if that's suddenly followed by somnolence their co2 has gotten too high and now they are hypercapnic so they're going to need bipap they're going to need help blowing off that co2 Um, with some patients um, you'll notice that you put them on the bipap they get their co2 off they wake up they get ornery (laughs) because BiPAP's really uncomfortable, they'll want the BiPAP off, then they get hypoxic, then they get hypercapnic, and then they get the BiPAP put on, then they blow it off, and then it's just cycle over and over again. So BiPAP's one of those things that I kind of dread having on a patient, because I realize it's probably super uncomfortable, and it's usually on patients with COPD, and patients with COPD have... Typically, I will say anxiety issues, and I think it just stems from years of dealing with this air hunger, with worry about being able to catch their breath, and it's completely understandable. And so people that have anxiety issues, really do not do well on BiPAP. I'm sure it's extremely claustrophobic. Um, So it's just, you know, if I see BiPAP, I think, oh, we're going to have a, we're going to have a fun night. (laughs) Okay. So, um, and then of course there's stroke for neuro. Anytime there are stroke symptoms, a sudden weakness, a facial droop, a change in vision, altered speech and responsiveness, you're going to get to CT scan right away. You're going to do a CBC, you're going to do coags, Uh, time is brain. So you're not going to dilly dally at all. And I apologize for the little beeps. I don't know how to get my email to turn off. Oh, I guess I could just close my email. So let's talk about pulselessness, okay? This is obviously a huge emergency, and I'm not talking about no um, heart rate, no heart rhythm, no heart pulse. I'm talking about a peripheral pulse. So. Once in a while you will see loss of a peripheral pulse. You are assessing your patient and you are not just going to check the boxes, you're actually going to check their peripheral pulses. So at 7 o'clock they're fantastic, you can feel them. I mean maybe they're not fantastic, but you can feel them. Uh, Let's say you go in at 11 and their dorsalis pedis is a little difficult to palpate. So what are you going to do as the good nurse? You're going to go grab the Doppler and see if you can hear the pulse. So you can hear it, let's say. Be nice to yourself, be nice to the nurse that comes after you and mark that spot with a Sharpie so that it is easy to find in the future. And you go back a little bit later because now your index of suspicion is starting to turn on. And at 1300 or at 1200, you go in and the patient says their foot's tingling and feeling kind of numb and you know, it doesn't feel right. You check the pulse. You still, you can't feel it, but you think I'll just grab the Doppler. So you do. No luck, no Doppler. Uh, You notice the foot is cool to the touch and distinctly more pale than the other foot. And a lot of times you'll even see a pretty uh, drastic line of demarcation where the skin is warm and red and everything's flowing to the, you know, it's almost like a line, maybe not quite that drastic, but I mean, it's very distinct where you'll see that the pulse got lost you need to call the doctor right away. This patient is going to need some kind of intervention so as to not lose that extremity. They're going to need probably, they're probably going to get vascular surgery. Uh, maybe they'll get TPA put into that spot right there. So they're going to need something done. Now, let's say you've got a patient who you come on ship and he says, "Oh, my feet are tingling. The first thing you're going to ask is what? The first thing you're going to ask is, is this new or is this your baseline because a lot of patients have diabetes, a lot of patients have diabetes. And one of those, uh, one of the side effects or comor- you know, comorbidities of diabetes is neuropathy. Also patients with prior chemotherapy treatment often have neuropathy. So you're going to, um, you're not going to get all upset about a tingling foot if that's his baseline. Remember, it depends. Okay. So let's go on to respiratory. The A and the ABCs, we should have started there because airway is the most important thing. Unless you're doing CPR, now it's CAB. Um, But anyway, so respiratory failure, very common diagnosis, cures for lots of different reasons. Uh, Pneumonia would be one of the most common. Uh, Fluid overload, also very common. COPD patients commonly go into respiratory failure. Uh, Cancer, drug overdose, uh, the flu, all kinds of things. So whatever the reason, you're, you're going to treat respiratory failure essentially the same way for the most part. Um, you're going to give oxygen and you're going to try to correct the underlying problem. So if it's pneumonia, you're going to give oxygen and antibiotics. You're going to do percussion. You're going to try to get, you know, uh, the all that gunk out of the lungs. If it's fluid overload, you're going to give oxygen and you're going to give Lasix. So sometimes you'll just need to pop them on a nasal cannula. Sometimes you may need a mask. You may need BiPAP. They may need to be intubated. You're going to get the air into them somehow, some way. So what are the reasons for intubating someone? Okay, let's say your patient is somnolent and they're breathing seven times a minute. Somnolent meaning they're not really rousable. Are you going to intubate? Most likely, yes. If they're typically, the saying is less than eight, intubate. Um, You might be able to get away with BiPAP. It just depends. I would probably think that if they're somnolent and breathing super slow, that's a cause for intubation. You would probably do an ABG and see that their gas looked really bad let's say the patient's breathing 40 times a minute and they're using accessory muscles so they're in there they're working hard Uh, they're going to crump they can't sustain that especially if it's a little old lady or a little old man uh, someone who's already kind of ill and sick they need to be intubated let's say your patient's unresponsive maybe he's had a neuro uh, incident and you can hear gurgling in the back of his throat okay this guy needs to be intubated because he cannot protect his airway Uh, Let's say your patient has an asthma exacerbation. You heard wheezes an hour ago, and now you go in, patient's struggling to breathe. You listen, you don't hear any wheezes. Are you going to think their asthma is getting better? No, you're going to be the smart nurse and realize that's a super bad sign. When you can no longer hear wheezes on an asthmatic patient who is clearly having more difficulty breathing, that's a bad sign. That means the airway is closed or almost all the way closed. You would need to intubate this patient. Let's say you draw an ABG on a patient and their PaO2 is 75 and their CO2 is 60. Okay, that's a bad ABG. If you haven't studied ABGs yet, just know that that's bad. (laughs) So you would intubate based off their blood gas. Um, And let's say your pulse ox is showing, you know, something like 83, that's probably too low. I would make sure that you have a good waveform on that. They may also draw gas. And you're most likely going to be doing something for this patient. Maybe not intubating, but definitely putting them on maybe a non rebreather some kind of high flow oxygen. So there's lots of other reasons. Patients are going to need emergent treatment. These are just a few. Blood pressure, heart rate, neuro issues, a loss of a peripheral pulse, or respiratory issues. Um, But these are just a few to get you started thinking about the, are they symptomatic? What else is going on with them? And what am I going to do about it? Also, the other big question is what caused this issue in the first place? Because sometimes you can fix it. So just a little advice on setting yourself up for a good day if an emergency does happen is to be prepared. I can't stress that enough. Uh, Go into your room. You'd be shocked, shocked, shocked to see how many rooms do not have safety equipment in them. You want to make sure that your oxygen works. Check that first thing okay check that you have suction set up and that it works okay especially if you have a neuro patient who may not be able to clear their airway you want to be able to suction you do not want to have a code or some kind of emergency situation where you need suction and there's nothing in the room that would be extremely bad Uh, ambu bag make sure that it's in the room I know some hospitals especially on the med search floors do not necessarily have them in every room but they are in the hallways right outside the rooms maybe one ambu bag for every two or three rooms make sure you know where it is make sure you know how to take it apart for a patient who's vented you're going to take the uh, the mask part off and just hook the ambu bag directly up to the et tube make sure you know how to do that if you don't know ask your nurse they'd be happy to show you know where the code button is. Um, Probably, maybe, sometimes in a different spot in each room. Just make sure it's usually at the head of the bed somewhere. Make sure you know where it is and that you can reach it without too much trouble. Know how to operate the bed. There are, you know, typically only a few different types of beds in the hospital, but you'd be surprised they all operate a little bit differently. Uh, We had a patient once, a very large patient on a bariatric type of bed and needed to be intubated because she pulled her ET tube out um, and nobody knew how to unlock the brakes on the bed. The doctor had to kind of slither behind the bed in order to intubate the patient. We did eventually figure out how to to work the brakes and the patient was fine, but it was just a little bit of a tense moment as he's (laughs) yelling at us to move the bed and nobody knows how to do it. So luckily he wasn't too big of a guy and he could squeeze back there and take care of the patient. Um, you want to have all of your lines labeled so what I do one of the first things that I do when I'm doing my morning assessment is I take some masking tape into the room with me and I have my Sharpie and I look at all the meds that are running into the patient I trace it from the med to the pump to the patient make sure that what's you know Supposed to be running together is running together if I'm not 100% sure I will check a compatibility report If the nurse before me was very conscientious they printed out that compatibility report if it's not there I always print one and make it handy for the next nurse I then label all of my lines directly above the Y site with the name of the med that's running in So that if there were an emergency, somebody would know immediately which line is just normal saline that they can use for emergent meds and which line say has insulin, you would not want to push that. So do all of those things at the beginning of every shift. You will be ready. Know your patient's history, know their comorbidities, know their baseline, and you'll have a great day. So thanks for listening and be safe out there. This podcast is a production of Straight A Nursing dot com.